Motherless Brooklyn devotes a lot of time to explanation, which may be necessary given the intricacy of the plot, but which turns into a lecture after a while. Randolph played with a bullying dynamism that is Baldwin's finest, strongest note. As Norton places implausibly enough, the center of a tale of large-scale malfeasance and personal vice that suggests a variation on Chinatown. That's from A.O. Scott of the New York Times. His review of Motherless Brooklyn, one of five movies we're reviewing this time here on Cinephile. That's right. I always listen to the people out there. You guys are so great to be listening. And as always, I appreciate the support. If you can go to Apple Podcasts, subscribe, rate, and review. That's how we keep this thing rolling. I love the fact that uh, clearly people are commenting and we got good numbers there right now. In fact, my new best friend, Scott Spinelli, over at uh, MLB Network, even commenting here with the latest comment I see. So uh, I appreciate everybody here chiming in. And like I said, the more you can spread the word, the more it helps us out. And proof positive that I always uh, appreciate what everyone's doing. By the way, Scott mentioned specifically, I really appreciate when he turns me on to a movie like Parasite, which I would have not have seen otherwise. So if you haven't seen Parasite yet, seriously, go check it out. It's a phenomenal movie. Um, but proof of the fact that uh, I pay attention to these, I was in Los Angeles for DAZN on assignment and wonderful girl named Sarah ran up to me and said, by the way, I just want to tell you I love Cinephile. Of course, I was not there for anything to do with Cinephile, so Sarah made my day. And then we got to talking and she mentioned the fact that uh, she'd commented previously. And I said, I know, I know who you are. You commented last February. You said you work in the industry. You're not a sportsman. You found my podcast. She said, yes. So there you go. I pay attention to every single review that comes in whether it's good or bad, and uh, I've got a long memory for it, so it really means a lot to me. And thank you to Sarah, who's always listening and downloading, and I solicited her advice. I said, what should we do with the podcast? How to make it better? What do you like? What do you don't like? She wants more reviews. Mark Simon wants more reviews. I'm giving you more reviews. Five reviews this time here on the podcast. She also suggested, since she's, uh, she says, I, I normally skip the bada binge. I said, no, I hear that. I know it's going to hit and miss. So I am going to do one last bada binge because Sopranos Con was this weekend. That's right. A comic con for Sopranos fans. It was unbelievable. Took place for the last uh, couple of days here in Jersey. So I was able to uh, venture out there yesterday. And I have plenty of stories about meeting many of the cast members and such. But Sarah then mentioned we should do Friends as a, bada, as a potential binge, which uh, unfortunately is not going to happen. I, I have no interest in watching Friends. But maybe we'll get to Breaking Bad once the... Uh, once, uh, you know, once the Oscar season is done. Joe, I know I had mentioned via email doing a potential Oscars revisit, but I don't know if we're going to do that here. Should we get production for that? How do you, what do you think of that idea? I love the idea. Let's get production for it and let's do it. I have a few uh, name suggestions of what we should call the segment. But uh, yes, okay. I think we should uh, redo the Oscars, essentially. Right. For listeners of the podcast, you remember when Shea Serrano was on, I told Shea, I'm going to steal his idea, which is you go back to the Oscars, whatever year, 1988, and redo them and say, okay, here's who should have won Best Actor, here's who should have won Best Director, etc. So that will be coming soon to Cinephile. But let's get to it. There's lots of movies to talk about here, so let's knock out Motherless Brooklyn, which is the first film on the list. Thanks, as always, to the BFCA, Broadcast Film Critics Association, of which I am a proud member because they get to send me all these screeners. So, you know, people always ask me, do you get screeners all the time? No, it takes place during award season. So... From mid to late October till about mid to late January is when I get inundated. It's phenomenal. Ben Lyons, of course, my man who hooked me up with this. By the way, Ben and I, while I was in L.A., I saw Ben and Max Bredos went and saw Uncut Gems, Adam Sandler's new movie, and a Q&A with Adam Sandler. But I think I'll, I'll save that story for when the movie, closer to when the movie comes out. Uncut Gems is coming out in late December. So I will tell my Adam Sandler story and my review of that movie a little bit later on. But thanks to Ben for the BFCA because the BFCA are the ones that sent me my edition of Motherless Brooklyn. And in addition to that, the CD and a record as well. I don't have a record player, but if anybody wants a record, go ahead, have at it. Bottom line is this. I read the book. I love the book, as has my friend and producer, Joe. So Joe and I are both big fans of the book. Want to see what the movie's all about. And bottom line is this. It helps if you've read the book. 
I mean, the book is exceptional. The story is this. It's from Jonathan Lethem. It's about a detective who's got Tourette's. And so the way it's written is so skillfully done is that, you know, he's trying to have a conversation with somebody and then all of a sudden he has these spasms and, you know, these words come out and sometimes it's embarrassing. Sometimes it's funny. Sometimes it's silly. Um, but at all times, it's a little bit unnerving, especially if you don't know who this guy is. The first time you meet him, all of a sudden, boom, he spits out some words. He goes, I'm sorry, I got these, I have these ticks. And the fact that Edward Norton shifts it from the 1990s where the story was set, book came out in 1999. My boy Cab, I stole it off his bookshelf. I don't know if he's still read it yet, but it was a great book. And uh, he shifts it to the 1950s, I think because Norton just loves that area. And he just loves that terrain. So he just, you know, he wants to wear a fedora. Great jazz soundtrack. Uh, Winton Marsalis was involved. The great Dick Pope shot it. Um, so he just likes that era, I think. And so he shifts it to the 1950s. So it feels like, you know, one of those private detective movies and those film noirs of the 50s. But the book was actually set in the late 90s. But yeah, detective with Tourette's. How does he manage that? And why exactly is he a detective if he has Tourette's? Like, how does this impact things? But Bruce Willis, his boss, I want to welcome so to see Bruce Willis in the movie. Don't see him nearly enough these days, playing Frank Minna, his boss. He loves the fact that this character of Lionel never forgets anything. He's got an incredible memory. So, of course, perfect for detective work. He has an incredible memory, um, but he is obviously memorable, which doesn't help. So it can't, it can't exactly be a private detective because people are going to remember, hey, who is that guy? And obviously now we know it's Tourette's, but in the 50s, it just say he has that condition. At times, it reminded me of the, the great film, uh, Memento, because every single time Lenny goes to talk to somebody, the first words he always says, I have this condition. He has to explain the fact he has short-term memory loss. Uh, and so in the case of uh, Motherless Brooklyn, every single time Lionel meets somebody, whenever the ticks come up, he goes, I'm sorry, I got this condition and away we go. But the bottom line is this. Um, he's clearly after a Chinatown for New York. I mean, that's uh, I read this briefly, that part from A.O. Scott. And I watched Chinatown again recently. God, what a great movie. My buddy Scott Rogowski, it's one of his favorite movies. Uh, my friend Anish Shroff, who's really smart, for some reason didn't like it. He thought it was a little bit overrated. I'm like, that's crazy. If you haven't seen Chinatown, go watch it again. And so since I think I'd seen it recently, I was able to see more of the parallels with Motherless Brooklyn. Chinatown is about water and this plot to, you know, keep water away from people and charge people for water. And you've got this horrific villain played by John Houston, who's just an absolute monster. And that famous scene where Nicholson confronts Faye Dunaway and tries to find out, you know, who is this girl? And she says, my sister, and he slaps her viciously. My daughter slaps her again. My sister slaps her again. My daughter. I mean, it's just a horrible scene and a big reveal the fact that Houston is her father that he raped her and that that woman, that's what she's saying, it's my sister and my daughter, which is just, a, I mean, a horrifying revelation in that movie. And by the way, spoiler alert, Chinatown does not end on a happy ending. I mean, that's one of the more darker movies of the 1970s, but it's a brilliant film from Roman Polanski. That ending is just harrowing. Forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown. So this time in Motherless Brooklyn, rather than a plot about water supply in Los Angeles, this is about real estate and, you know, focusing on neighborhoods being destroyed here by Robert Moses as New York. And Robert Moses is a real-time character. Uh, and if you read Robert Caro's The Power Broker, I think it tells you all about him. And so in the book, excuse me, in the movie, it's Moses Randolph. So you keep the Moses pretty clearly who Edward Norton is uh, tipping his hand to. And it's played with perfection by Alec Baldwin, who is just so good at playing these types of villains. You know, he's arrogant and uh, cruel, and, but at the same time, very dastardly and very, very smart. So the first thing is Norton's performance. I mean, it's, it's a full diet of ticks, mannerisms, jerks, blurts. I mean, I thought he did a really good job with it. You really have to be a strong actor and be willing to be up to the challenge to do it. And I think he convincingly portrayed somebody who has Tourette. So that's first and foremost. And the whole cast is really good. I mentioned Baldwin, but so is Willem Dafoe. He's always must-see TV. He's got a very pivotal role uh, as Alec Baldwin's brother in the movie. Um, and you've got, you know, just 
perfect casting, I think, across the board. Like I mentioned, Dick Pope, who also shot Mr. Turner, does an excellent job. The whole look of it is really good. So why is the movie not better? Why am I only giving it three Maple Leafs, which is a recommendation, but it's not um, you know, a rave recommendation. The reason is that in this case, Norton is the director, and this really is a passion project, okay? He wrote it, so he adapted the screenplay from Jonathan Lethem. He directed it, he stars in it, and he co-produces it. But he violates the most important rule of storytelling, which is show, don't tell. And, and too often, I think, in the second half, it really bogs down when you get characters going on and on, explaining what the plot is, explaining what these machinations are, explaining what the capitalists are doing and how greedy it is. And just as a, as a film viewer, you just don't want to see people just talking, explaining stuff. You're going to actually see it. So that's why I think in many ways it's it's a bumpy ride at times, a bit of a mixed bag. I mean, it really does attempt to do big things. And I can appreciate the ambitiousness of the movie. But ultimately, for me, it's a, you know, I don't want to say a slight disappointment because I do recommend the movie. But it's it's two and a half hours. And ultimately, it's a lumbering film. Joe and I both give this one three minute beliefs. Joe, your thoughts on Motherless Brooklyn? You know, I, I I can't agree with you more on this. I really overall enjoyed it. And just to talk about the book again, the book is incredible. Anyone who hasn't read it before, definitely put that on your must read. Um, first, I'll say... It's easy to forget with Alec Baldwin doing so much TV and being on Saturday Night Live that he is a movie star and can, can command the screen and has star power behind him. So it was nice to see him as the villain in this movie. At the same time, it was, I'm not going to say slow, but it just didn't move at the pace that I wanted it to. So at times I found myself wandering. Justin Chang, who's a great critic for LA Times, he said of Baldwin's bellicose performance reminds you of a certain former Manhattan real estate titan with a history of bigoted practices even better. And he supports the fact he moved it to the 50s. Norton's boldest, most admirably offbeat stroke was to move the story's contemporary setting to the 50s, the better to accommodate the character's fast-talking noir patois and to clothe some of the actors in attractive period knitwear. It also serves as a useful reminder to the audience that gentrification and discrimination, never far removed from present-day headlines, have have deep historical roots. So that was a, a risky move there by Norman. I think it ended up working out, but I'm with you. I just think at times you do have a good action sequence and a fire escape. I did appreciate the fact he was going for something different there, but, but ultimately it does not leap off the page. I ultimately, all of you, if you have not read Motherless Brooklyn, you should read the book. And then if you want to check out the film, go for it and have at it. All right. Next film to review right now is Longshot, which is from Seth Rogen and Charlize Theron. And this story is <laughs> pretty out there. Uh, Charlize Theron plays the Secretary of State, and Seth Rogen is a guy from her past. She used to babysit him. Uh, he's now a far left-wing writer, and they happen to meet conveniently enough at a party and get to talking a little bit, charming each other, and then she basically suggests that he work for her because he's such a good writer and that he can punch up some of her speeches because they could use some more humor and some humanity. And very early on, she meets the president, who is, uh, of course, hilariously played by Bob Odenkirk, who tells her that he's leaving because he wants to go try his hand at movies. And that's why now she has an opening to run for president. So the movie never really makes it clear what side she's on. I mean, I guess you could say she's a centrist. But obviously, Rogan is a very far-left guy. The first scene of the movie, he seemed trying to infiltrate the KKK. And he's, uh, you know, saying, yeah, death to Jews and stuff and being very self-loathing because he himself obviously is Jewish and eventually he escapes. The fact he escapes is actually a pretty remarkable scene. I was just shocked at what he did. It's a laugh out loud moment. But that's the basic premise of it. You know, it, it's a comedy and certainly it's has its moments. But I, I do think this one, again, is a bit of a mixed bag. Um, this is from Manola Dargas, the New York Times. Theron, a natural screen presence who has developed into an undeniable one, is wonderful and long shot. She's a fascinating performer, 
With a watchfulness that can make her seem detached, she seems supremely and confidently alone on screen, which in moments can create an internal tension with her physical superfluidity, her outward inviting flow. It's an ideal combination for this character. And so you got Charlotte and Fred. And by the way, his character's name is Fred. I believe it's like Flutarski. Yeah, Fred Flarsky. So he actually sounds like it's supposed to be like Fred Flintstone. And uh, Chris Nashawati, who uh, Joe knows, he's a terrific film critic, formerly of entertainment weekly his review was so classic you know some of these writers they write so well he said not that there's a ton of competition but long shot may be the most deliriously raunchy comedy with a pivotal semen gag since there's something about mary and so you've got rogan as this apoplectic idealist you know a schlubby stoner fred flintstone in cargo pants and then you put him together with theron's character so this is obviously the whole fish out of water tale, right? He obviously doesn't belong. She's very much a part of the cavalry. And how are they going to get together? And at first you say, hang on a second. In what world is Charlize Theron going to be linked up with Seth Rogen? Like, are you kidding me? He's, like I said, the schlubby, loud guy. He's smoking weed all the time, doing drugs. And she's obviously beautiful, statuesque, very smart. So it already takes a leap of faith that these two are even going to get in bed together, which inevitably is going to come. Dan Sterling and Liz Hanna write the script. But if you're willing to have that suspension of disbelief, I think it's amiable enough. There's certainly some profane punchlines. Um, again, I agree with uh, Manola Dargis's review of Theron. She's excellent. I mean, talk about an actress who can do everything. She won an Academy Award for Monster, a serious dramatic role. She's phenomenal in Mad Max Fury Road, a great action movie. And here she is in a comedy. You know, there's one scene in particular where she's trying to negotiate a truce and she just took a molly with rogan they're out partying and the fact that you know she's not overplaying the fact she's clearly high and that her and rogan just took drugs but it's really skillful acting where it made me think actually of uh, leo when he's on the quaaludes and wolf of wall street it's hard for actors to play off when you're on drugs because you got to do it funny you got to be a little bit loopy but you can't be uh, overboard with it so it's definitely i would uh, siphon it under the uh, outrageous adult comedy uh, particularly the first half i thought was pretty good because it's you know wild and exuberant um, but again, the, the only way you ever believe these two are together is like, you know, in a TV show like King of Queens. Remember when I met Kevin James, I, I didn't, I didn't want to be too rude to him. I'm like, dude, seriously, Leah Remini? Like, how did your character get her? <laughs> and he's like, no, oh, you see it all the time in Queens. I'm like, yeah, sure you do. Um, but ultimately, I think if you like Rogan, if you like Theron, if you like a good comedy, I would recommend it. I will give it two and a half Maple Leafs because of the fact it's so rare to see big screen comedies these days. And at least they're, they're going for some good punches. They're trying to be as uh, satirical as possible. Obviously, the world of politics right now, which is so bizarre as it is. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's enjoyable for what it is. I mean, like I said, with Rogan's character, he's trying to get her to loosen up and do different things. And I think that Theron certainly is really good. I mean, I, I said her screen presence carries a lot of things. Also of note is O'Shea Jackson Jr. That's right. Ice Cube's kid. He plays Fred's best friend. The Fred's best, you know, the best friend role is always a little bit... Uh, ridiculous it always feels like something they just kind of patched together but he actually is pretty funny and the rest of the cast alexander skarsgård plays a just trudeau-esque prime minister so he's got big the canadian accent really warping his vowels over the top of course andy circus is in the movie he plays a rupert murdoch style baron they've got um, a whole crew making fun of fox and friends they're like a greek chorus of the movie a greek chorus for the movie rather um and uh, yeah, one more thought here from Justin Chang, by the way. Longshot is a bit like watching Hillary Clinton and a Bernie bro fall in love, except you might take that as a warning rather than a recommendation. Um, but it just shows how weird the world is right now, man. That you say, okay, fine. Charlize Theron and Seth Rogen can hook up. Yeah, okay, whatever. Fine. This is the way the world is. Um, and it, honestly, if you like political comedies like Dave or the American president from the 90s, maybe that'll be something again more up your alley. But like I said, it's a likable romantic comedy. I will say the ending, it gets very raunchy. I mean, that's where I thought, hang on a second. Did Rogan punch up this script? Because this feels something more like him or Apatow or Franco might put together. But uh, it gets a little filthy there towards the end. So, yeah, it's not exactly for families. 
but it is an amusing comedy. I will give it two and a half Maple Leafs. What's also amusing here is, Joe, you heard the movie was terrible. Yeah, my friend hated it. Just absolutely hated it. And now I'm curious after hearing you, I feel like I need to see this movie. But they, ju- the, my friend's criticism was that Rogan, this was probably his worst performance as an actor. And I don't know how much weight you can put behind that when it's a raunchy comedy. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, I, 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 would, I guess I would say it wasn't a great performance in that he wasn't stretching. I mean, it, it feels like that same Seth Rogen type. Like I said, schlubby, stoner, smart, loud, uh, obnoxious. I'm like, yeah, that's kind of that's kind of what he does. Like, it's not, it's nothing different when you haven't seen Seth Rogen. So that's a that's a funny criticism. I will say this though. Um, Justin Chang also wrote in that the fact that Theron is the latest Hollywood beauty, a list that includes Catherine Heigl, knocked up. Amber Heard, Pineapple Express, and Rose Byrne and Neighbors to suffer the putative indignity of being cast as a plausible love interest for Seth Rogen. Like, I, I, I don't think these actors paid too much of an attention to critics, but like, imagine Seth Rogen's like, hey, all right, what do you mean? You say the fact I could not get these four women, Charlize Theron, Catherine Heigl, Amber Heard, and Rose Byrne. Only in Hollywood, right? Right, yeah. Uh, next one I want to talk about is Late Night, and this stars uh, Mindy Kaling and Emma Thompson. Again, speaking of comedies, and in this instance, I was surprised because, again, I'd heard good reviews, but I'm going to give it a lukewarm two-star review. The story is this. Uh, Emma Thompson is a master of invective, as Ty Burr wrote in the Boston Globe. The withering observation that cuts people off the legs, the bon mot that slips like a shiv through the ribs. And she is a late-night host who is suffering some ratings problems. That's right. Things are kind of going downhill. She's been around there for a while. And by the way, it just makes you realize how rare it is to see a female talk show host ever. Joan Rivers lasted seven months, which shows just the magnitude of the problem, the fact that you really can't get anybody who will do this for a variety of time who has been successful. But I would say the character, based a little bit on Letterman and the fact it was like Dave towards the end, wasn't really trying that hard, kind of mailing it in a little bit. So they decide they need a little sprucing up here and enter Mindy Kaling, who also wrote the script. And so, okay, who's this Indian American who's self-deprecating, who comes in here? And, and as Catherine says to her at one point, Catherine is Emma Thompson's character. Molly is uh, is Mindy Kaling. She says, your earnestness is very hard to be around. Successful people hate their admirers and can't stand being complimented. So you've got Emma Thompson, who is obviously a brilliant actress. She's kind of channeling Meryl Streep uh, in The Devil Wears Prada, right? Um, classy older woman, but but sharp and, and, and lacerating and cruel. And then you've got Mindy Kelling coming in, who's perky and upbeat, and she's trying to be warm, and she's trying to, uh, you know, warm up the host as well and, and get the show uh, better ratings. Otherwise, it's in danger of being canceled. It's going to be replaced by Ike Barinholtz, who was previously on Cinephile. He's obnoxious as one of these bro comics is coming in. He's being groomed to replace her. By the way, speaking of the reporting uh, supporting cast, John Lithgow, he plays Catherine's dying husband. Good to see him pop up. He's always a, a talent. And Amy Ryan, who I like a lot, she's Catherine's boss. And uh, as Jake Wilson, who's a film critic, he wrote, Ryan as Catherine's boss suggests a complex history between the two women with a mingled wickedness and a warmth that may make you wonder. So the story I just thought was ultimately too predictable, right? You're trying to make Catherine likable and make the show a big ratings hit, and you're trying to make Molly a successful writer. And I, I'm sure a lot of this is based on Mindy Kaling's past experience, because when she walks into the room, you know, it's all young white male comics who are the writing staff, and then here she shows up. The brown girl with no previous experience. Nisha Ganatra, by the way, is also the director. I don't think there's anything particularly strong with the directing. It just feels like kind of a, it has, has kind of has a television feel to it. Um, but it's one of those workplace comedies. But ultimately, you know where the story's going. Unless you're a big fan of these actors, I wouldn't recommend it. I think Mindy Kaling is talented, but I, I think she can do better than this. 
I appreciate the fact it was, I'm sure, like I said, based on some roots of what she's felt, whether it's in writing for the office or just navigating Hollywood. And I do think the movie has important uh, statements to make about sexism and the way that women are treated in the business. And, and Emma Thompson has a couple of really good monologues when she talks about the fact that, you know, how hard it is for an aging woman. And she's a British woman. The fact that it's tough to get work, it's tough to kind of stay relevant. So I do think the movie, it, its heart is in the right place. And there's a lot of moments that they can stand to it. But ultimately, for a comedy, it's got to be a lot funnier. And, you know, when I'm coming out, they're saying it just feels like another kind of routine workplace comedy. And when I want a workplace comedy, I want office space. Well, this isn't anywhere near that. Um, and again, the beats are there. The fact that she's, you know, an Indian American woman who used to work in a chemical plant. You're sticking her together with Catherine, whose uh, humor is that kind of raised eyebrow stuff. Even the, you know, the top of the fact she's willfully out of touch with youth culture, the fact that she's not on social media, I couldn't buy that. I go, how would this host not be a part of social media and still be on the air in today's age? Like when Molly comes in there, she's telling her, oh, you got to get on Instagram, you got to get on Twitter, you got to try this. And I'm like, as if nobody in the room would have recommended this to her prior to now, like only now when your ratings have been in decline for a couple of years, you're in danger of being canceled by Amy Ryan's executive. Now you're like, hey, have you thought about social media before? Let's start doing these videos. Like, you know, look at what Jimmy Fallon's doing. Look at what James Corden's doing. So... I thought that was a, a little tough to breathe there at times. I'm going to give this one two Maple Leafs. Joe, do you have any thoughts on Late Night from Mindy Kaling and Emma Thompson? I was kind of on the fence of whether to see this or not, and now I'm firmly off the fence, and I probably <laughs> will not see it. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's one of those, like I said, when I say heart is in the right place, like it's, it's good to have movies like this. Like I don't think you have a lot of movies featuring women in their 50s who are central characters or an Indian American woman who writes the script and is also in the key roles. So I, I feel bad bashing it. And I, I mean, it's amiable enough, but yeah, I'm going to give it to me beliefs. And for your sake, yes, Joe, I would probably skip it. All right. Those are your reviews so far, but how about the latest from Oscar Farhadi, the Persian filmmaker who made a couple of films. It's won Academy Award best foreign films. The latest is called everybody knows that review next. On June 14th, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your team, Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters June 14th. Get tickets now. couple more to discuss here before we will get to um, our Mount Rushmore. And our Mount Rushmore, by the way, is going to be movies based on books in honor of Motherless Brooklyn. So uh, I think that's going to be a pretty good topic here to discuss because there's definitely a lot to go to here. We go from uh, a dragon boss there in Emma Thompson's character to a master director in Oscar Farhadi. Now, he is the guy who won Oscars for A Separation, which is absolutely brilliant. And The Salesman, which is equally brilliant. So he's twice won Best Foreign Film. He also made a movie called The Past, which I liked a lot. It was pretty good. And now you have this film, Everybody Knows, which played at the Cannes Film Festival last year. God, I'm finally getting around to seeing it. A year and a half. It's so hard to find this movie. And uh, eventually I got to it. But of course, if it had been as well received as his other films, it would have been easily available. Instead, 
It's a mixed bag for me, unfortunately. It's a little bit underwhelming, and maybe a lot of this is because of the fact that Farhadi is such a good director. This is the first time he's taken his uh, camera outside of Iran, and the story is set for a big wedding in a small town of Spain. And you got Laura, Penelope Cruz's character, who comes from Argentina with her two children. Her husband, Alejandro, played by Ricardo Duran, is not able to make the trip. And so you got a big family wedding, and it, you know the story gets set up here, and not everybody is family. You've got um, Paco, played by Javier Bardem, he lives in a hotel, sorry, lives in a nearby wine-producing estate. So they're the ones that tend to the vineyards that used to belong to Laura and her family. So you got history now between Laura and Paco. And by the way, Penelope Cruz and Javier Bardem are real-life lovers, in case you're curious. And so these two characters, the fact in the, in the movie that they used to be together and not, you go, okay, all right, we've got some history here already. And then all of a sudden, there's a disappearance. And uh, the teenage girl, the 16-year-old daughter, Irene, is, all of a sudden, she's gone. And there's a ransom demand that's texted to both Laura and Bia's phones. Bia is Paco's wife, Javier Bardem's wife. So interesting already here. The, the kidnappers are going with Penelope Cruz, so that's the mom. But then her ex-lover's wife, they're also texting to. So already say, okay, where's where this going with this? And... Um, one thing already I didn't like about it, the, the title is Everybody Knows, and there's at least three or four times when they mention Everybody Knows. I, I just always hate when titles are too much on the nose. I'll take it once, like in Goodfellas, where, where Ray Liotta explains what a good fella is, but I don't like when they keep saying, oh, and now everybody knows. It just feels so portentous to me. And so I never like when the title is said aloud by a character more than once. Meantime, the story is about secrets binding and divided people, the destructive power of uh, unspoken grudges, half-buried memories, that kind of thing. And... Um, Certainly the choreography really good is excellent early on, especially that moment where she's gone. Imagine being at a wedding, I mean, rowdy celebration, all of a sudden it's replaced by frantic desperation. But this is one of those stories that's about, you know, how the past catches up with you. And again, this is a guy who made a movie called The Past. So clearly this is a subject matter that Farhadi's interested in. And it's about the consequences of those actions in the past and how they can appear and, you know, haunt you like a ghost. But ultimately, I, I thought it was, like I said, a disappointment considering how great this director is. I never thought that it added up to some of its parts. To me, the story felt a little bit mechanical. Um, I thought A.O. Scott put it well, the, the New York Times critic. He said, at once, it's overplotted and flimsy. A welter of reversals and revelations that don't do so much resolve as collapse. The movie wants to be devastating and is merely satisfying. And certainly when you see Farhadi's work, if you haven't seen A Separation, you watch it. Then this whole story builds up, builds up to the ending, which is a crescendo. The salesman has a devastating climax. In this movie, I was watching it. I said, okay, I, I can kind of see where this is going. There's been a couple of surprises so far. And then the movie ends. So I think the word to describe it is just ultimately unsatisfying. I do think it's well acted, as always. Uh, Penelope Cruz in particular is a real standout. Uh, Javier Bardem obviously is solid. And I love Ricardo Duran. He was in a movie called The Secret in Their Eyes. That one, best foreign film, uh, maybe about 12 years ago. Now, it was 2000, I think it was 2009, 2010. But it's a great, great film. It won best foreign film. And Ricardo Duran is, is the main actor in it. So I was happy to see him in the movie. He plays Penelope Cruz's love interest. But if I were you, I would go see The Secret in Their Eyes rather than go see Everybody Knows. It took me a while to see it, but uh, unfortunately, I'm only going to give this one two Maple Leafs. Have you heard of this movie, Joe? Have you heard of Farhadi's work at all, The Salesman or uh, A Separation? You know, I'm completely unfamiliar with his work, but it's intriguing. It sounds like this isn't the movie that if I'm going to explore his catalog that I should start with. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it's always interesting, too, for a foreign filmmaker when he actually finally gets... You know, this is big-time Hollywood stars here, and all of a sudden it's a story which has uh, gone from Farsi to speaking in Spanish. All right, here's his, his crossover, so to speak. But for me, it, uh, 
it didn't work uh, nearly as much as I would have hoped to. So uh, that, unfortunately, is everybody knows and my thought on that movie. Meantime, the last one to discuss before we get to the Mount Rushmore, that is The Russian Five, which is uh, the best movie I'm reviewing this week. Three and a half Maple Leafs for this one. It's Joshua Reel's documentary about how five Russian hockey players helped revive the fortunes of the Detroit Red Wings. And it's the first half an hour feels like a spy thriller. I mean, when Sergei Fedorov has to try to come to America and defect. I mean, this is <clears throat> the Cold War. This was that communist regime. This is very difficult in the 1990s to leave Russia. And so you've got a very enterprising general manager and Jimmy Davilano in Detroit. And you've got Jim Lights, who's now a star CEO, but also part of the Red Wings organization, contacting a, 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 a hockey writer in Detroit who speaks Russian and asking him to go to Russia and, and pass this message on to Sergei Fedorov and Vladimir Konstantinov that they want them on the hockey team. Meantime, you've got a KGB official sitting right there. So he's going to speak a little bit in Russian to so make sure the KGB guy's okay with that and then speak a little bit of English. And hopefully uh, not tip these guys off and have them being stone-faced the fact that, listen, if you want to come, oh, by the way, here you go. And he's literally giving a brochure. Here's, uh, you know, the cars to the, the Jaguar. Here's a nice downtown condo in Detroit. Here's a bag full of money. This will be yours, boys. You just have to join us at the certain meet and leave at a certain time and hop in a plane. And, and in the case of Fedorov, he was single, but Konstantinov, hey, you have to leave your wife, leave your kid. It feels like a spy thriller. So the first half of particularly is very appealing because I don't think you have to be a hockey fan to enjoy it. Um, and in terms of celebrity, you got Jeff Daniels, who's a Michigan native, the marquee name. He says early on, the Red Wings have always been a salve for the city of Detroit. But in the 1980s, uh, they were referred to the, as the Dead Wings. They hadn't won a championship since 1955. And so they had to think outside the box. And Mike Illich, the founder of the pizza chain Little Caesars, he cooks up this scheme here with Jimmy Devolano to draft better off the 1989 NHL draft. And they have to deal with the Iron Curtain. So it feels like a spy thriller here. You know, John Lacare is there trying to get out of the U.S. But eventually he's there. Konstantinov's there. And Slava Fatisov's a great defenseman. was already on the New Jersey Devils. Uh, they get Vyacheslav Kozlov, who didn't acclimate very well to the state, still speaks Russian, didn't really care, but he was an angry guy and uh, certainly had enough uh, spit and vinegar that he was well acclimated to the North American game. And then Igor Larionov, who they traded for. He was on the San Jose Sharks and we were able to make a trade there. They traded Ray Shepard for him. So... Eventually, it's little by little. Okay, Fedorov has to acclimate. He clearly is a star. Konstantinov's a great defenseman, dirty player, but rough and physical. And all of a sudden now, how do we get to be this really good team? And as Devolano says, you know, eventually we had five Russian players. How do you keep them? And the, the most fascinating part of the documentary is when they show the different style of playing, known as keep away. The fact that the American style is, you know, dump and chase, dump the puck in, go bang on the boards, grab the puck. These guys, no, we had the puck. We're not giving it to you. Even Wayne Gretzky says of Konstantinov, I hated him. And he says with a smile, that's a compliment because the fact that these guys were so tough to play against. And even Gretzky says Fedorov was one of the most talented players I'd ever seen before. Ultimately, they have these Russian players and they go on to win their first Stanley Cup in 42 years and they win it going again the next year. But there's actually some drama to it as well and some real sadness because of the uh, car accident which Vladimir Konstantinov suffers you know, only days after they win that first championship. And I'm glad the movie delved into that, this limousine accident that seriously hurt him, never played hockey again, thankfully still alive. I mean, near-fatal injury. Uh, he's okay, but never played hockey again. And then they won the Cup the next year when you get Konstantinov out there on the ice with his friends. I mean, it's an unbelievable moment. Also, the Masur, Sergei Manatsikhanov, he was also really badly injured as well. So Russian 5, I think, works in a lot of ways. If you're a hockey fan, obviously you love it, but I think you appreciate it as a documentary showing uh, the triumph of spirit and perseverance and team building and cooperation, but also, as I mentioned, a spy thriller overcoming, uh, you know, what's happening in terms of the political 
climate in Russia at the time. And then, as I mentioned, some tragedy there at the end. As these guys win a Stanley Cup, you finally reach the pinnacle, and all of a sudden, one of your teammates is is fallen, so to speak. So I thought there was a lot that was good to it. The Russian Five, Three and a Half Maple Leafs. Joe is a guy from Minnesota. you got to like hockey. I'm sure you're into this. Oh, I'm really, really into this. I'll definitely be checking out this documentary. And it's like what you said. I like documentaries that can tell history through a lens that you might not think would be a catalyst for this overarching climate of that era. Yeah. Check out the Russian Five. Try to find that. A couple other comments here, by the way, everybody knows before we get to entertainment news, because Joe had thrown me a couple of blurbs here. Peter Travis of Rolling Stone said, don't hold this against Farhadi. Everybody knows he's capable of doing a lot better. That's very accurate. And Jeffrey M. Anderson of Common Sense Media. This might have been a pretty good kidnapping story, but writer-director Oscar Farhadi goes soft. He slows it down to the point of almost stopping it, emphasizes goopy, over-the-top soap opera. Sadly, that is true. Go watch his other movies instead. Entertainment news. Paramount sitting Noah Hawley to write and direct the Star Trek film. That's right. The Legion TV creator is in talks to write and direct a fourth film in the current J.J. Abrams launched Star Trek film series. Expected to star Chris Pine, Zachary Quinto, Zoe Saldana, and the rest of the, the film series principal cast. My brother, of course, is a huge Star Trek fan. He's locked in. The last film in the series was directed by Justin Lin. A separate spin-off film to be filmed by Quentin Tarantino is in parallel development. So that's the main reason I want to mention the story is the fact that, yeah, Noah Hawley's writing and directing Star Trek, but, Joe, we still may get Tarantino directing one as well. You know, it would be interesting to see if these come out around the same time or if Tarantino still does it now that whole Noah Hawley's doing it. Yeah, it does remain to be seen. Uh, we have to hope, by the way, if you listen to the previous Cinephile, Tara Wood was really good talking about Tarantino, his career ambitions. Check out QT8, The First Date, which is available December 3rd. Todd Phillips clearing up those latest Joker sequel rumors. There's no contract, he said. That's right, a confusing moment. We all thought, oh God, another Joker, which clearly I said, oh God, because I didn't like the original. But uh, Todd Phillips said he asked for the right to develop a portfolio of DC characters' origin stories. And then Deadline disputed the fact the October 7th meeting ever happened, reporting that no Joker deals were in place with Phillips and his star, Joaquin Phoenix. So then Phillips sat down with IndieWire's Eric Cohn following the latest Joker sequel and said, here's the real truth about a sequel. While Joaquin and I have talked about it, and while touring the world with Warner Brothers executives going to Toronto and Venice and other places, of course, we're sitting at dinner and they're saying, so have you thought about... But talking about contracts, there's not a contract for us to even write a sequel. We've never approached Joaquin to be in a sequel. Will that happen? Again, I just think the article was anticipatory at best. So that's good news for me. I'm hoping this does not happen because I wasn't crazy about Joker. Joe, have you seen it yet or no? No, I, I'm just trying to decide when I want to get punched in the gut for... <laughs> uh, it might be this weekend, it might be the next weekend, but I feel yes. like from what you've told me, it's just you kind of have to mentally prepare for it. Yeah, yeah, you don't need to be. There's enough things to bog you down in life. You don't need to have Joker to, uh, to upset you <laughs> further. Uh, next one here, just because I love Will Arnett, I wanted to mention this. Steph Curry and Will Arnett, they're working together on an NBA-related series, which is in development at Fox, titled The Second Half. Multi-camera comedy has been given a script plus penalty commitment by the network. It's taking a humorous look at a retired NBA player who moves back home to Charlotte, of course, where Curry's from, buys a car wash and struggles to connect with his father, daughter, ex-girlfriend, and childhood best friend. He starts to realize that when it comes to the game of life, Curry and Arnett will serve as non-writing executive producers. So I don't know if Will Arnett's actually going to have a role in the show, or he's, it's odd if he would just be a non-writing executive producer and then wouldn't actually be acting in it. But anything involving Will Arnett, I'm into, and I'm glad that Fox, which of course was... Uh, the main network that gave Arrested Development its boost before it moved to Netflix. Glad that Will and Fox are back in business, right? 
Totally, yeah. Arnett, Arnett's great. I really hope that he stars in it. I'll watch anything with him. I love Bojack Horseman, and so this seems like the best partner Curry could ask for with Clay Thompson being injured, so I'm ready for it. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, Warriors are just dreadful. Uh, Worst team in basketball crazy. right now. Oh, it's ugly. Uh, meantime, False Alarm, everyone. Days of Our Lives has been renewed for a 56th season on NBC. Unbelievable. Actors originally report came out that could be out of work because no new deal had been reached Instead, a Corday Productions executive told the cast the renewal is happening. Just needed a few I's and T's and needs to be dotted. They'll go on a year-end break, which is apparently always the case, and production will resume in January. 56 years of Days of Our Lives. That is staggering. Joe, if you'd asked me how many years has that soap been around, I would have said maybe 30 and would have thought that was maybe a bit generous. 56? That's unbelievable. Wow. It's it's also kind of incredible that we still have a long-running show from the early 60s that still exists in the world. It seems like a throwback to old TV. So, you know, here's to another 56 seasons. <laughs> Days of our lives. Unbelievable. Mount Rushmore. All right, this is a great idea here. Joe gave us for the Mount Rushmore of movies based on novels in honor of our feature review of Motherless Brooklyn. As always, you can tweet us, give us your suggestions for what you'd like for the Mount Rushmore. Cinephile Pod, C I N E P H I L E P O D, or you can tweet me individually, Adnan S. Virk, A D N A N S V I R K. This is a top list, man. There's a lot of great movies on this. Oh, my God. I feel like there's no way we can do this properly, but we'll just dive in. Goodfellas for me, absolutes one of my favorite movies of all time. That's based on Wise Guy by Nicholas Pileggi. The book is great. There's one quote in particular I love in which Pileggi talks about most wise guys who he's talked to are so narcissistic. They can't see the forest for the trees. They're so obsessed with themselves. They don't really understand what's happening outside of their own self-glorification. But in the case of Henry Hill, Henry was all eyes. It's a great expression. And so it's just how fact that Henry was always observing everything. And that's why he was a great collaborator for Pileggi in telling the world of wise guys and what was obviously the template for one of the great films from Scorsese with Goodfellas. So that one absolutely is in there. Now it gets trickier. Like, I'd love to get Cuckoo's Nest in there. My brother told me it was a Jeopardy question recently. I can't put that in there. I'm putting The Godfather in. Okay, that's a pretty easy one, right? Mario Puzo. Rare example of the movie being better than the book. The book is good, but there's some weird stuff in there. Remember, there's a sequence with this gynecologist was very random. I mean, there's, there's some fluff in there that you feel like you definitely could take out. So credit to Coppola. He actually took a best-selling book, which was beloved, and took out some of the nonsense and just focused on the great stuff and elevated it to perhaps the best film of all time. So Goodfellas and The Godfather are two no-brainers. God, I'd love to get... Um, well, I'll, I'll get Apocalypse Now in there. That's based in The Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad. Again, having read the uh, novella, I thought, well, I'm putting two Coppola adaptations. I didn't even realize that as I'm saying this. I'm going to put that in there as well just because of the fact that it was definitely a challenge to adapt that and just the fact that, as Coppola said, you know, my film isn't a film about Vietnam. It is Vietnam. Uh, there's so many indelible sequences. Um, you know, the ride of the Valkyries and that, that whole helicopter assault, uh, Duvall's performance... 
Love the smell of napalm in the morning. When Brando shows up, yeah, it's a little bit lost and confusing, but he does have a certain mystique about him because he is Brando and he's overweight and he's, you know, cloaked in these robes and he's bald and he's talking about cutting people up. I'm like, oh my God. Martin Sheen, that first sequence set to the doors at the end. There's a lot of great, great moments in Apocalypse Now. Even if at times you don't really understand where the hell it's going, I do think it's a great war film. And now it gets really tricky. You got to get one of like the Maltese Falcon, uh, you know, kill a mockingbird, train spotting, true grit, no country for old men. What the hell? I'll go with the Age of Innocence. How about that? Another Scorsese film, just because it's a little bit off the board here. I'm going to go with, uh, you know, a period piece because, again, I read Edith Wharton's novel and it's really hard to adapt a film of that time to today's era. But Scorsese do it. And one of the smartest things he did was he had a voice of the narrator. So I'm giving him specific credit for the adaptation because he was smart to say, you know what, I want to try to get a sense of the feel. So Joanne Woodward is the narrator, but she's not actually a character in the movie. It's a very unique idea when you have that. Uh, Alec Baldwin, of course, did that um, for the Royal Tenenbaums. Like, I love that idea of having a narrator who's not actually a character in the movie. So because of the fact Marty used a narrator in Age of Innocence in adapting the book to the movie, which is one of the great stories of an unrequited romance ever. And it's just, you know, totally devastating and heartbreaking and shows his range as a filmmaker that he can make this love story like that. That's my list. Age of Innocence, Apocalypse Now, Goodfellas, The Godfather. I should do a separate list not involving Martin Scorsese and Francis Ford Coppola films. But have at it, Joe. You've got a great list here. I'm sure you can have Dr. Zhivago, Brokeback Mountain, Fight Club, Gone with the Wind. There's tons out there. There's so many, and we were talking beforehand, it's just how many Harry Potter movies do I want to include, and can I fit a Hunger Games movie in there too? We'll find out. I think, first off, I'm going with American Psycho. Um, nice. Brett Easton Ellis, he's one of my favorite all-time writers, and so American Psycho, so my second one would be Old Con- uh, No Country for Old Men, Cormac McCarthy, um, and then my throwback, I'm doing To Kill a Mockingbird for... So many reasons. Gregory Peck, I don't really think I need to say any more. But my favorite adaptation that I've ever seen is 1979, The Warriors, based off of Saul Urich's novel of the same name. And it's just about the this gang in New York. They're from Coney Island. They go up to the Bronx for this huge gang meeting. Then they get framed for the murder of the head you know, gang person in New York, and they have to make it back to Coney Island safely through the subway with every gang in new york city chasing them wow the warriors the warriors have you ever seen it before i haven't it's i've, I've heard about it it's, i feel bad now joe i've let you down the warriors i haven't seen and i'm still gonna get to blow out at some point here sound engineer that's the one that's closest to your heart yeah that's the one closest to my heart but this one if you're not if you have two hours to kill over thanksgiving weekend definitely watch the warriors this is my number one recommendation i think i've ever had on cinephile well i know shaquille o'neal is a big fan he's quoted the warriors before definitely in uh, some rallies and stuff all right good list there once again tweet us with your thoughts on your mount rushmore and now it's time a little special edition here of the bada binge the bada binge all right, I know last week it was the final Bada Binge, and that is true, but this is just a special edition of the Bada Binge because I went to Sopranos Con. That's right, a Comic-Con for Sopranos fans. It's amazing these guys pulled this off. They had 55 cast members there, but let's clear this up on who was not there. Carmela, Edie Falco, no Christopher, Michael Imperioli, no Meadow, Jimmy Lynn Sigler, no AJ, Robert Eiler, uh, no Annabella Ciora, uh, Gloria Trullo, uh, no Janice, Ada Turturro, so those are some, you know, big names here. Okay, not there. But look who was there. 
And by the way, it took place in the Meadowlands. So, like, it really felt, I mean, I, I live, you know, 25 minutes away. So it's right near, you know, Giants and Jet Stadium, MetLife as well. So this is taking place on a Saturday and a Sunday. I figured Sunday would be a disaster with all the uh, NFL traffic, but it was so cool being there, man. I mean, you walk in there and you can just you know, smell the sausage and peppers and the big ziti and they got cannolis for sale. And it's just a bunch of wannabe wise guys out there and everyone just soaking up the uh, ambiance of the show and Italian-American culture and my wife and I had a blast. I mean, I think she was a little off put by the crowd. It was working class, to put it politely. But uh, listen, man, we're hardcore fans. We're just up there, and everyone's probably spent their savings for six months to come here and attend because uh, it was not cheap. $50 for admission, but I, as I knew it, just like it's like going to a flea market. 50 bucks means you just walk around. Okay, I'm going to go buy a Soprano shirt or a mural of Tony Soprano. Okay, that's 20 This is 20 whatever. No, no, get, get whatever the next package is. So I went with the VIP package, which was the acting capo. So to get the capo package, it's one fifty a piece. So one sixty with tax, hundred bucks for the sitter. You, you know, a little bit of food, four hundred fifty bucks, which is the same price I paid for the New York Film Festival, if you'll recall, to get opening night tickets for The Irishman and then tickets for ten other movies. One of which ended up being Motherless Brooklyn, which Joe ended up going to see. So for the same, how about this idea? Either you could see The Irishman for the same price, New York Film Festival, and by the way, in attendance were Scorsese, Pacino, De Niro, Pesci, or go to Sopranos Con with with your wife, get a sitter, nice six hours here in the Meadowlands. It was great, man. Had had a total blast, and uh, grateful a few people recognized me. I a guy. Ran me big cinephile fan said he listens all the time so he loved the bought a binge so i really appreciate the fact people are listening and there was a fellow sopranos fans there um and it was great man like i said the first couple hours you kind of just wandering around checking out stalls meeting people i mean that guy got they got guys dressed up as like artie buco like it was unbelievable it literally is comic con for sopranos fans then they have this Italian singer. He was great. He did this Italian song. They always play at weddings all the time. So I, of course, messaged that to my Italian friends who verified that, yes, we always hear that song at weddings. Uh, and the food was great. You know, a little bit of ch- They didn't have any ziti, but I had to get a chicken cutlet, had a couple of cannolis. And then you have the, the booth set up. So here's one of the areas where the creators went wrong, and they were very defensive. I just saw this email they sent to all of us. Like, hey, sorry, I wasn't 100%. Okay, we did our best. Yeah, I know you did your best, but here's where you went wrong. You have general admission people, and they're all lining up to get an autograph or a picture. And what you got to do is it costs you one box is 80. So it's 20 bucks. So literally, you have all these cast members sitting at these tables. It reminded me vividly of The Wrestler, which is a very sad, despairing film. But the scene where Ram Jam, Mickey Rourke, and all those wrestlers are sitting there, and it's like, all right, they're charging 10 bucks for a picture, 10 bucks for an autograph. Like, it just feels so sad watching that movie. So here for this, it was just my first thought. Like, you had a bunch of actors from like 15, 20 years ago, and, and some of them have not done anything of note since then. And we're talking like minor, minor characters. They're just sitting there at stalls waiting for someone to go, oh, here's a box of ZD. That was the expression, obviously. Here's 20 bucks. Can, I just, can you just sign my poster? Can you just take a picture with me? Whatever. But listen, what the hell? I think a lot of them were in a good mood because, hey, you're, you're reveling in the fact you're part of one of the greatest shows of all time. It's nostalgic. And you're giving it back to fans. And that's why nobody was more generous than Drea DiMatteo. Easily, Adriana had the longest line. I mean, I looked, I go, oh, my God. Like, it's got to be an hour, hour and a half, two hours. Like, I was like, how could you wait in that line? And she was unbelievable. I noticed a couple of the older actors, uh, Vince Corotola, who plays Johnny Sack. You know, give me a 15-minute break or the bathroom, whatever, make a phone call. She did not stop. And every single person, big smile. She's hugging people. She's friendly. I mean, she was, and she looked great. Still a knockout. Uh, so I props to her because Dre DiMatteo certainly was the biggest star there. And she was awesome. Second, I would say, would be uh, Uncle June, Dominic Chianese. So my wife and I quickly said, okay, how are we going to do this? Because they have general admission, signings, et cetera. You give a box of ZD. The VIPs, which we were, they said, okay, after 2 o'clock, you can sign. But it was ridiculous. What ended up happening is, and these guys admitted this in the email they sent to all of us, which is that we, mis, you know, we, we misread the fact most people got VIPs. 
So the whole point of getting the VIP is it'll be a shorter line to get a picture or an autograph. And instead, I think the lines were longer. So the other part of it is this. I'm thinking I paid 150 So for each of these people, and I don't care about the autograph. They gave us a big post. I'm like, well, I don't care about a scribble. Everyone knows selfies are the new autographs. I just want pictures. And I see there's a very short line for uh, Johnny Boy Barisi, uh, who is Tony Darrow. I mean, it's Larry Boy Barisi. Tony Darrow. Tony Darrow. He's in The Sopranos. More importantly, he's in Goodfellas. He's the one that tells Pesci to pay the tab in the one of my funny scene, and then Pesci smacks the bottle of wine over his head, and then later he's pleading with Pauly, you know, to take care of Tommy, and then he, you know, he agrees to have Henry run the restaurant. I went up to him, and by the way, he mumbled something. I was like, "Look at this guy," and I thought he was making fun of me. So literally, I'm like, "What did you just say to me?" <laughs> he said, "I said, look at this guy. He's so built. I guess my sweater was a little bit tight, a little bit of a schmedium. So I thought he was calling me fat. He goes, "No, I'm saying, look at look at you. You look big. You look strong." I'm like, "Oh, thanks." I can I get a picture? And his buddy, because they have a handler like at each table, and he's like, oh, it's 20 bucks. Like one, one box is 80. And right away, I show my, my label. I go, no, I'm a capo. Look, I got the VIP. He's like, yeah, it's still 20 bucks. I mean, you got to be kidding me. I paid 150. I got to pay 20 bucks here for a picture with this guy, Tony Darrow. God love him, who is in like, you know, handful of scenes in the Sopranos. <laughs> like, I was like, no, I'm good, thanks. But other people were really nice. Oh, by the way, no Silvio as well, Stevie Van Zandt. But Maureen Van Zandt, his wife was there. Very short line. So literally, I just walk right up to her. Can I get a picture? Yeah, of course you can. Boom. Knock that out. So my wife is a big fan of Dominic Cianese. So she goes, I will wait in the line for Junior. You go ahead and knock out as many of the other ones as you can. So I'm getting like Robert Funero. He played Eugene Pontecorvo. Remember when he committed suicide? I'm like, that guy's great. I'm like, he was in one pivotal episode. He was awesome. Um, Burt Young. I'm like, I'm definitely getting Burt Young. Couldn't believe Burt Young. Very small line. This guy's freaking Polly and Rocky. Like, this guy's an acting legend. Uh, so I was thrilled to meet Burt Young. Five-minute wait. And, I was, of course, put the fist up. Like, here we go, man, me and Burt. And uh, for those who don't forget, he played Bobby Bacala Sr., and he was a part of one pretty big hit. Also no Bobby Bacala, Stephen Sharipa. Um, but then you get Lola Guadini. She played Agent uh, Deborah Cicciarone. Of course, uh, uh, Adriana's the one who gets Adriana, locks her up, obviously. She was great, very friendly. Short line here. Agent Harris is awesome. Matt Servito. The people were getting pictures with him. He was like purposely like, you know, locking them up. So putting your hands behind your back. So I got one with him. He was awesome. Agent Harris, Matt Servito. Good sense of humor. I love Jackie Jr. Went up, met him very quickly. Jason Cerrone. Nice guy. Um, Sophia Milos. Uh, very attractive. Remember the Italian mob boss? Again, charging 20 bucks for a picture. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. I'm a, I'm a VIP. I paid $160 for this. I'm not going to pay you on top of this 20 bucks for a selfie. You look great, but I'm not going to do it. Speaking of the Bada Bing, they also had a Bada Bing original dancer. I mean, I am literally on the floor laughing. Like, it's an actual stripper who was in the show and worked at the Bada Bing, and she's there dressed as a stripper, of course. And I'm like, and these guys, again, working class, you know, truck drivers, mechanics. Hey, look at her, look at her. Hey. Like, it was so funny. They're handing over boxes of ZD to get a picture with this weathered stripper. And uh, although they, they, in front of all of them, the stalls, they had their pictures from the show. I'm like, yeah, that, that is definitely her. I do, I do remember that face from the Sopranos. She's not making it up. Bada Bing bartender as well. So anyways, my wife's waiting in the line. I'm getting everybody else. I go back. We meet Chianese. He was great. Um, of course, my wife loves uh, Godfather like we all do. I mentioned Johnny Ola to him. Uh, I just said to him, hey, there's so many great lines as they're taking the picture. He's like, what's your favorite? And I said, uh, Tony's one sea hair away from owning North Jersey, and I am that sea hair. And he kind of laughed. He was like, oh, I said that. I'm like, of course. You're like, Come on. I don't know if he was playing dumb. But he's like, oh, that's a pretty good line. I forgot that. Um, Johnny Sack is great because we live in Hohokus, which is next to Ridgewood, five minutes away. And Ridgewood Auto, where I go to get my car service, there's a, a picture of Vince Corotola in there. And it just says, John, this is a great garage. So I met him. I just said, hey, man, uh, I go to that garage in Ridgewood, John Tastian. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know, John. Yeah, yeah cool. I'm like, oh, he says, you always bring the Benz by. I was like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, that's not what you're getting right. You get these 10 second moments with these guys. I'm like, oh, I got to talk to Johnny Sack with his Mercedes Benz, get a picture, move it along. 
But I had a blast, man. My wife was laughing. She said, you're geeking out so hard right now. I ended up beating 16 cast members. And so here were the nicest ones. Um, Catherine Narducci was unbelievable. She ended up talking to my I swear to God, for like five minutes, she was holding up the line just talking to my wife because um, she was so nice. She was in a Bronx tale, played De Niro's wife. She's also in The Irishman. She's great, small role. Uh, but she's in the back of the car there with Pesci and De Niro when they're making the long drive. And of course, she played Charmaine Bucco. So she was super nice. When I met her, I go, hey, I want to tell you something. I paid 450 bucks to go see The Irishman. She's like, you what? I'm explaining to her. I'm like, I went to the New York Film Festival. I had to get extra tickets. She's like, you're crazy. You're a nut. I'm like, I had to do it. I got the movie's unbelievable. because you loved it. I'm like, yeah, of course. I've watched it three times in theaters. I'm going to see it again when it comes out on Netflix November 27th. And my wife already told her, you know, how much crazy we are. So she was really nice. Um, did not get big pussy. Long line for him, so I passed on him. Here's the other two who are super nice. <laughs> this guy's unbelievable. Mario Polite, who you can follow on Twitter, uh, on Instagram, excuse me, mpolite13. He's trying to get the followers up. I said, sure, I'll tell people. mpolite13. Maybe think of the old Nordiques defense of Michelle Petit. I said, I'll remember your name. Uh, his poster, he literally has the picture of employee of the month behind him. And I'm telling my wife, I go, yeah, that's the guy who raped Melfi. She's like, what? I remember the episode where the Melfi was raped. That's the guy. And he sees me telling my wife and she has a look of horror on her face and he starts waving at us. Like, he <laughs> waves us over and I'm dying. He goes, listen, I've been sitting at the stall all day. That's the funniest thing I've seen all day. Your wife's reaction to the fact that when you were telling her who I am. Uh, but I said, God, you're unbelievable in the show. He said, yeah, let me tell you something. Because we were crying in between takes. He goes, it was such an uh, agonizing scene to do as an actor. And to this day, people are like, oh, you're the guy that raped Melfi. Mpolite 13. He's also a firefighter, though. I mean, wonderful guy. I talked to him for like 10 minutes. He was so funny. He started talking boxing. Oh, my God, I'm going to Saudi Arabia. Ruiz Joshua fight. Oh, okay, that's cool. Oh, you're on Dizona. Okay, cool. You spin, sure, whatever. So he was great. Uh, definitely support his work as uh, Jesus. I think Jesus Rossi was the role. I think that was his character's name. Employee of the Month. Anyways, we all know what a great episode it was. The other guy was unbelievable. Armin Garo. If you remember late in the season, he's the mobster who's part of Phil Leotardo's crew. He tells Meadow... He goes, looks like you have a little bit of whipped cream in your face. God, I'd love to add to it. It's just a filthy thing to say. And then later on when Tony gets word of it, when Meadow's telling Carmela she's cheerleader, he nearly beats this guy to death. That guy's great. He was telling me his backstory. He's Armenian. Uh, hence, his name is Armin Garo. Uh, he's also on uh, Instagram. Find him, A-R-M-E-N-G-A-R-O. Super nice guy. Pictures of me and my wife, friendly, telling stories, talking about Gandolfini. So I honestly, Sopranos.com was a real hit because... Just like if you went to a football you know, team, it's okay, 53-man roster, everyone's going to talk to the quarterback, go talk to some of the so-called lesser lights. Same thing with the Sopranos. I mean, we, we met uh, Tony's other sister. She's great. She was so friendly. We're like, oh, I wish you were in the show more. I said, yeah, me too. Because you don't know what it's like to be a cast member. You're always hoping to get more lines, more roles. But you know, it's ultimately up to David Chase and the writers. So um, she was really cool. Ultimately, just a very cool experience. Like I said, you get to geek out big time. And two stories as we close. Uh, one was that um, Vince Corotola told the story. Uh, on, it was a Q&A, so I actually asked the question. I said, hey, can you tell the story that Alan Sepinwall and Matt Zoller-Seitz told in the Soprano sessions? By the way, Sepinwall was there. He, he messaged me after he saw that I tweeted. I'm sorry I didn't get to see Alan there. I've been talking about his book every every time on Cinephile for like six months now. But yeah, Sepinwall also in the house. So I, at least him and Matt were able to hopefully sell some books as well. Uh, but Corotola told the story when he first got cast as Johnny Sack, and he said that he had to be at somewhere else like in Long Island, he had to go get to the city. And he goes, I was so reluctant to do it. I just didn't care, right? He goes, I hadn't, I hadn't had much success lately. I'm like, this is a waste of time. I'm not going to do it. He goes, I'm at least 30 minutes late by the time I get to Manhattan. I go get a slice of pizza. I goes, I swear, I'm like feeding dogs, kittens. I'm doing everything I can but go to the audition. He goes, then I stop for a smoke. I have a smoke. He goes, back when I used to smoke, I go upstairs. And the casting director, without looking up, says, you're late. 
I'm like at least an hour and 10 minutes late. I'm like, whatever, I don't even care. I'm hoping she says, just go home, you're done. Instead, I do it, I get called back the second time and the second time, because when I'm doing, about to do the audition, I hear everybody else going in ahead of me and they're all yelling and shouting. And I said, okay, I'm gonna go the other way. So I was very quiet and very uh, subtle in my delivery. And David Chase said, that's why I cast you because you were different than all the other guys. And the other guy, didn't get to meet him, little Carmine, he's great, Ray Abruzzo. Ray's story, he said, the reason I got the role was the, the script that I had to read was there was a mention of the Treaty of Versailles. And I was talking about mending fences between the wise guys. And I just said, okay, you know, this mobster, I don't think he's that smart. I'm going to say Treaty of Versailles. And again, David Chase goes, you're the only guy that purposely mispronounced Treaty of Versailles as Treaty of Versailles. And that's why you got the role. So pretty cool, man. For all those actors out there, take chances, take risks, make it your own. And maybe one day you can be uh, a part of the greatest show of all time. The Sopranos. Sopranos con, Joe. What a concept taking place in the Meadowlands. I absolutely love it. And they can't, they, they can't pick a better location for the Sopranos con as well. I, would, I don't know what I would have done if I had met Junior Soprano. Honestly, I'm surprised that you were able to keep it together in front of him. <laughs> well, our friend Michael Lombardi, of course, uh, could quote Uncle Junior all day long. But uh, do you agree with my tactics? Like I thought of all the names. Like, I'm telling you, the Adriana line was out the out the. Seriously, it was ridiculous. Yeah. I said, okay, you're gonna you're gonna spend two hours. By the way, the VIP was literally from two until four, and they were all gone. And I'm telling you right now, either you had to make the choice to say, okay, it's Adriana or bust, or let me get everybody else. And I st- we still got Junior, which I think is pretty epic. Right, exactly. It, it, it kind of reminds me of like going to an amusement park, and it's like, all right, I can go for the the most popular ride, or I could get a bunch of other rides in in that same time it would take to wait. So that's really, really cool to hear as well. It's awesome. Once again, check out my Instagram, Adnan Svirk, A-D-N-A-N-S-V-A-R-K. I posted all the pictures of all the cast members that I got to meet, so you can check that out there. Uh, and that's the last we'll talk about, the Bada Binge and the Sopranos, I'm sure, for a little bit. But as always, I could talk about it all day long. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate all of you. This was a long one. A lot of talking here from me. That's why we went. No guest. But you wanted reviews. Sarah, Simon, we gave it to you. Five movie reviews. Next week, because these, these screeners keep coming fast and furious, I'm looking at my desk right now. I got the two popes. We'll review that. Jonathan Price, Anthony Hopkins, both getting Oscar buzz. New film directed by Fernando Morales. He's the guy who did City of God. Brilliant movie. And uh, we'll also review Wonderful Day in the Neighborhood. That's right. Or is it a beautiful day in the neighborhood? Whatever the hell it is. Tom Hanks' new movie, Playing Mr. Rogers. Just got that screener as well. So next week, we'll be reviewing those films and much more here on Cinephile. As always, do subscribe, rate, review, and I'll see you at the movies. time inspiration it's worth shopping kroger where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie and no matter what tasty choice you make you'll enjoy our everyday low prices plus extra ways to save like digital coupons worth over 600 each week you can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points more savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping kroger worth it every time kroger fresh for everyone fuel restrictions apply